Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see so many of you here. Uh, although I know that when we, we do our, our services uh, purely online and I'm recording from home and that sort of thing, uh, that we're all together in spirit, it's still different. Huh? You can't tell if somebody listening is uh, flipping or if they are looking bored or if they are, yes, yes, amen, preach it, brother. You can't tell. Uh, Unfortunately, right now with the mask on, also I also cannot tell lah. So, but good to have different bodies with with us here. Uh, good to be together in the house of the Lord here and also online. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray for the exposition of your word to be faithful. We pray, Lord, that help us to listen in the right sort of attitude. Help me to speak with the right sort of motivation. May you bless our time today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are looking at the story of Esther. And uh, I don't know how many of you are, so, uh, are familiar with this story, uh, but we've covered some of it in our one-year uh, Bible reading plan, and we'll be reading some of it next week as well. And the big idea of my sharing today is that God is always present and He is always faithful to His people. Okay, very simple, uh, simple idea for today. God is always present and He is always faithful to His people. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Esther. I can finally interact with some people here. If you're familiar with the story of Esther, please raise your hands. Online, you can say yes, 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 or no, no, no. Uh, okay. Okay, a few of you are, uh, but I can't take it for granted that we're all so familiar with it. Some of us, maybe the last time we, we heard it was in a Sunday school class. So I'll try to summarize it as quickly as we can, because for this particular book, it's important to get a, a rough overview of the entire story, because the, the key message lies in the whole story. Now, the events of the book of Esther happens right after the second exile to Babylon. So if you remember in the previous sermons, uh, in the weeks leading up to this, uh, Israel has been exiled to Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah eventually has been exiled to Babylon, right? And so now after this second exile to Babylon, when the God's people have been driven out of their land, a, a large number of them have been taken out, uh, the Babylonians, who were the world power back then, are overwhelmed and defeated by a new world power. Okay? So this new world power is Persia. Okay? For those of you who watched uh, 300 way back when, uh, that's the, the massive world power, okay? the one with all the different, different uh, nations that are fighting for this world power, Persia. Okay? And so the Persians had taken over from the Babylonians and the Jews were allowed to return to rebuild the temple after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Now, at this point, this is the first time in the Bible when they are called Jews. Okay? So, if you are anything like me, as I uh, came to the Christian faith and I read the Bible and all that, very confusing, you know, you've got Israel, la, then you've got Jacob, la, then you've got uh, Israel and Judah, la, and then you've got Jews, and they're all referring to God's people, right? So the, the reason why they're called Jews is because they're the remnants from Judah. Okay, so the Judeans, the, the Jews, okay? Something along those lines. 
And so those from the northern kingdom of Israel were scattered all over, and the remnants in the northern kingdom eventually would come to be known as the Samaritans. Okay? Just, just a very simple way of putting it. But the Jews are our focus for today. Not all the Jews went back to Jerusalem. Quite a lot of them stayed on in exile to live in Babylon and whatever cities that they were scattered in. Okay, so Esther, the events of Esther, happens in this capital of, of Persia at this time, a city called Susa. And it is, uh, they, they, they are, a lot of their Jews, a lot of their fellow Jews have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They have stayed on. Now, one of the main reasons the book of Esther was written was to explain the origins of this feast called Purim. Okay, Purim. And the Jews would observe this feast every year after the events of the book of Esther. And so it's a bit of an origin story for them. So as we read just now in Esther chapter 3, there's this guy named Haman, okay, or Haman. Uh, and he's a bit like, you know, uh, if you watch Aladdin, uh, Jafar, the, the evil vizier, right? Uh, the one that can turn the stuff into a snake and whatever. And so Haman is the top official and he is the advisor to King Xerxes I of Persia. So the king at this time, King Xerxes. Uh, everyone is required to bow down to Haman because he was elevated to a great position of being the king's right-hand man, something like that. But Mordecai, who is a Jew, uh, refused to bow down to this Haman. And so Haman convinces King Xerxes to make a law that would wipe out the Jews on a certain date. And so you'll see in many passages of the book of Esther, the king is drinking, okay? After he was drinking, as he was drinking, uh, before they began drink, they sat down to drink. So the king is a bit of a drunkard during this season, okay? So he's uh, easy to manipulate in this season of time. And so the king is like, okay, you want to wipe out the Jews? Fine. <laughs> and so he goes along with it in verse 8. It's not just wiping out the Jews in the city, okay? If you look at this map here uh, on the slides, you see the green region. Sorry, it's very small. You can't see it all. But basically, this is the, the whole region of Israel plus uh, Babylon plus Persia plus uh, Parthia, Egypt, okay, that whole region. And the Persians had taken over all that territory. You see the green? Green is Persia, okay? So that was the extent of their might. They had overrun all the nations, including Egypt and all that. All the, all the world powers were assimilated under Persia now. And so this law to wipe out all the Jews in the provinces of Persia is not just in one small city or one country. It is in all these areas where they would have been exiled to, where they would have run to. And so that means practically every single Jew on earth. Okay, so this, this uh, law to execute all the Jews basically means kill all the Jews on earth, all right? Uh, almost every nation in that area would have uh, contained Jews that would be killed. Now, in the meantime, Mordecai is an uncle figure to his orphan cousin, Esther. 
and she auditioned to become queen because the previous queen, Queen Vashti, was dismissed. Okay, she, she didn't want to obey the king. Lah. Okay, so she was dismissed. Uh, queen Esther went through some beauty pageant uh, and she, uh, she won the king's heart. Okay, and he had a very soft spot for, for Esther. And so a whole bunch of events follow after this. Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. He overhears two guards saying, we are going to kill the king for some reason. Uh, they, they whispered it loud enough that he's able to hear. And so he went and told Esther. Esther told the king. Uh, and Mordecai got the credit for it. And so that was prevented. Mordecai hears about uh, this edict that was going to wipe out all the Jews. He goes to Esther and convinces her to help. And basically he says, you know, God probably put you in your position as queen for this time. And she's, she wrestles with it. Finally, she says, okay, fine, get all, all the people to fast for me. Uh, I will try. And if I perish, then I perish. You know, she will try. So she agrees. Esther goes to the king. Uh, he, he allows her to approach. And she invites him and Haman to a series of banquets. Okay, so he's, she goes up to them and says, hey, come, let's go Yamcha. Okay, so they agreed. Okay. Haman sees Mordecai and he, he gets angry because he's reminded of this fellow who refused to bow down to him. He sets up a pole to impale Mordecai on it. He says, okay, I'm going to get him this time. I set up this pole, impale him on it, display it to everybody. What happens if you don't bow down to me? King Xerxes has insomnia on that night. For some reason, he cannot sleep. Okay? Instead of drinking wine, he drank coffee or something. And he reads, in order to, to go to sleep, uh, some of us will, will uh, read to try and make us sleepy, right? So he does that. But instead of reading some fiction, he reads his court records. Okay? He goes through his, he goes through his uh, uh, what happened in his, in his nation, what happened in his uh, courts. And he comes across a record of how Mordecai uncovered the plot to assassinate him. So remember, Mordecai uh, discovered these two guards wanted to kill the king. And so he comes across it and he's, he asks uh, the, the people who are standing around him, what has been done for this guy? You know, he saved my life. How have we repaid him? And so they say nothing, nothing has been done. Now, Haman comes to him around that time to convince him to impale Mordecai on this pole that he had set up. Okay, he knows that he can convince the king to do anything. But the king, when he sees Haman, the first thing he asks him is, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? What should be done for the man that the king delights to honour? And so Haman is very full of himself. He thinks that the king is talking about him. And so he says, Oh, you should put him on a horse that the king has ridden. Let him wear a robe that the king has worn. Place a royal crest on his head. Let one of the king's most noble princes lead him through the city, proclaiming, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Okay, thinking that he's going to receive that treatment. Great honour, the things that he suggested. And so the king says, oh, Yeah, good idea, good idea. Okay, go and get Mordecai. Do for him what you have suggested. 
okay, and, and put him on a horse, you go and lead the horse throughout the city and proclaim that this is a, a king, a, a, a guy that the, the king delights to honour. So you can imagine, lah, Haman, his black face, uh, he has to go and do this honourable thing for his enemy, somebody that he really couldn't uh, stand. Uh, Haman and the king go to Esther's banquet. Okay, so next, the, the events continue. And on the second day, after they've done a lot of drinking, Esther reveals to King Xerxes, actually she's a Jew. She had kept this secret until then. Okay, so she reveals to him, I'm a Jew, and actually my life is in danger. And she requests for him to save her life and the life of her people. So the king says, who dares to do this thing to you? Who dares to uh, execute you and your people? And then she identifies, it's that guy, Haman. Uh, so Haman is terrified because now he knows that the king, who has a very soft spot for Esther, is going to uh, probably go wipe him out. Lah. So the king storms out in a rage. Haman tries to beg Esther for his life. Okay, he falls on her couch. Back then they recline on the couch. Huh? They don't sit. And so she falls at her feet and like, is trying to beg. And the king comes back. He thinks that Haman is molesting her and he has him executed and impaled on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. Okay, so now since Persian law didn't allow any laws to be reversed after they are passed, the king cannot reverse this law and say no need to execute all the Jews. So he passed another law on top of it to allow the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies. And so that's what happened. Uh, the Jews defended themselves, okay, and then the day after, they commemorated a feast to remember that day, okay, and they call it Purim because the Pur, uh, P-U-R, is the, the name for the lot that Haman cast to select which date to execute them on. Okay, that's why it's called Purim. So this feast remembers the day when they were allowed to defend themselves against their enemies and not get wiped out. And so Purim is still celebrated today by the Jews. It's part of their annual holidays, a bit like Christmas or, or Halloween or whatever. They eat, they give to the poor, uh, they, they often dress up in costumes, okay, in all the festivities. Okay, so now we know the origins of Purim. Let's come back to the book of Esther itself. Now, the book of Esther is a strange book. It's a, a weird book out of all the books of the Bible. In fact, it's, what, it's so strange that uh, one of the great finds of biblical archaeology, known as the Qumran Scrolls, okay, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, has a record of every book in the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. They did not include the book of Esther in their collection. And the people who collected these scrolls probably didn't quite like the book of Esther because it was so strange. John Calvin, the great reformer, didn't include it in his commentaries. Martin Luther even went so far as to say that he wished that this book didn't exist because it was so strange. And so what makes this book of Esther so strange? Well, if you've read through it, you may have noticed a lack of something. 
it does not mention God. Okay, this whole book, the whole book of Esther, if you read through it from start to finish, it does not mention God. It, it only mentions God's people, the Jews. Uh, it doesn't say anything about the law of Moses. It doesn't say anything about the temple. It doesn't say anything about prophets. Nothing about miracles. Nothing about prayer. It talks about fasting, but not prayer. Uh, it doesn't say anything about ethics. It doesn't say what's right or what's wrong. In fact, a lot of what you see in Esther is descriptive. Not say, go and be like Esther or go and be like Mordecai. Uh, Esther marries a Persian king. He's a Gentile. Okay, so that is against Mosaic law. Uh, so it's not something to, to uh, follow as an example. In fact, the, maybe the only thing in the book of Esther that resembles other books in the Bible, apart from the fact that it mentions the Jews, is the whole moral of the story. Okay, the, the ending that God's people win and their enemies lose that is consistent with the rest of the books of the Bible. But even though God seems to be absent throughout the entire book, we know that He is present. Because He's God, right? God is omnipresent. He is always present everywhere. Now, there's a reason why even though the, the book of Esther is such a strange one and was difficult to accept by some, it is still considered part of the authoritative canon of the Bible it was still included into what we know as the Bible. It was, and it still is, held in very high regard by Jewish scholars, simply because even though it doesn't mention God directly, it doesn't mention God's work directly, it is nevertheless a record of God's provision, God's providence, His protection for His people. God's people were on the brink of extinction. They were almost going to get wiped out. And so at the threat of extermination, a whole string of circumstances follow. These circumstances that happen after this threat are loaded with coincidences. Okay, so just to go through with you these coincidences, Queen Vashti was um, rejected, right, sent away. Of all the women to replace Queen Vashti, a Jew is chosen. She just happens to be in the perfect position to save the Jews from extermination, from such an order. Mordecai just happens to be around when this plot to assassinate the king is discussed, and he is now, the, the king is now in his debt. The king just so happens to be unable to sleep on the night of Esther's first banquet. The court records being read to him just so happens to be about the one Mordecai saving his life. Haman just so happens to be in court when the king is contemplating how to, record, uh, how to reward Mordecai. And Haman just so happens to be in a compromising position when the king comes back from a walk in the garden to clear his head. And Haman just so happened to erect the pole for Mordecai to be hung on it shortly before he, he gets you know, his, his just desserts, and he is impaled on it himself. And so there are just too many coincidences, too many just so happens that work together to save God's people from their enemies. Uh, one of the key themes of this book is this term, ironic reversal, okay, which basically means that you thought it's going to be this way, actually it flips and it becomes the opposite. 
Okay, and so those, these are these coincidences. It just so happens that things are reversed. There's an old French quote by this guy named Horace Walpole. It's in French, but translated to English, roughly translated, uh, translates into, chance is the nickname of providence. Okay, chance is the nickname of providence. And basically what that means is that coincidences are just another way of thinking of God's work and God's intervention. When you see a coincidence at work and it leads towards God's purposes, it's just another way of thinking of how God is actually putting things together and directing things towards His purpose. And so there are just too many coincidences in the book of Esther. God is clearly present even when he seems to be absent. So he's the silent actor, he's the invisible actor. He is just behind the scenes, but he's still there. He's still moving things. He's still ordering things. That is clear in the story of Esther. Now today, this applies to us as well, whatever situation you may be in, whether you're in a financial hardship situation, whether you're in a relationship difficulty situation, whether you're in a personal crisis situation, whatever crisis you are going through, God is present. He may seem absent, he may feel absent, but he is present. We need to remember that we are mortal human beings. We determine reality based on our senses, what we can see, smell, taste, touch, right, all that. And so we are limited by our own perspectives, we are limited by our own emotions, we are limited by our finite knowledge of what is going on. God is not limited by all that. I don't know how many of you keep a spiritual journal. Anyone keep a spiritual journal? Here? Okay, two people. Alright, online, I hope a lot more. Uh, if you have been keeping, so for the two people who have kept it, and those others online who, who do keep a spiritual journal, you would have noticed that if you kept one and you, you, uh, you have been recording, you, you go back, you flip back, you will be able to recognize when God was present in your life. Even if he seemed totally absent at that time. Uh, I can personally attest to this. I'm not so super regular about, about uh, journaling. I, I don't like writing so much, but uh, I have done it before uh, a few times, and when it is, I, I look back, usually, usually I journal when uh, you know, there's really difficult stuff going on, uh, I'm in turmoil and all that, and then I remember, oh God, journal, yes. Uh, and so I look back, and it's often at these most desolate times when I have no clue what God is doing, I have no clue where he is, and these random coincidences seem to happen. And later, much later, I can recognize that it is God at work. At that time, I don't recognize it. And so, for those of you who don't keep a spiritual journal, you've never tried one before, uh, try it. You can track God's hand at work. Because a lot of times, in our immediate situation, we just can't see it. We are too close to the circumstances. But when we remove ourselves and we look at it objectively, 
in terms of what God has been doing in our lives, you can see a pattern. You can see God's hand at work. But a lot of this can only happen, uh, can only be seen in hindsight. And so, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. That means it's very clear to see when you look back. Uh, even spiritual hindsight is twenty twenty. So what about now? What do we do when God seems to be absent now? Uh, one thing that Mordecai and Esther did was that they continued to have faith that God would deliver them, which brings me to my second point, that God is always faithful. Now, they may not uh, have explicitly said, oh, have faith in God in the book of Esther, but by their actions, uh, by what they said and by what they did, it indicates that they did have faith in God. When Haman tried to get the Jews killed, it was more than a personal vendetta against Mordecai for not bowing down to him. Because Haman happened to be a descendant of Agag. Okay, he's an Agagite. Uh, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites, one of Israel's enemies. And they were people that were mainly wiped out by King Saul and King David. And so Haman had a racist grudge against the Jews. And when Mordecai refused to bow down to him, it was the perfect excuse to exact revenge for his people. Okay, so it was a bit of a, a racist thing. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews because of what they had done to his people. And so when he managed to convince the king to go along with his plans, the order to slaughter all the Jews in the kingdom bore the king's seal. Okay, it wasn't just Haman's command. It came at the command of the king. It meant that the order came from the king himself, all his subjects, all his armies, everyone else in the kingdom, now had orders to kill every Jew that they came across. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a Jew, living in the most powerful kingdom in the world, and now the king says that you and all your kind are to be executed in a few months? Can you imagine? Uh, it's like living in the greatest country or greatest nation in the world. Okay, let's say before Brexit, lah, before Brexit happens. It's like living in the European Union and receiving news that everyone in the EU is going to be Chinese in the EU is going to be executed. It's something like that, okay? So, can you imagine? It, it's such, it would feel like such a hopeless situation, okay? You and your fellow people living in a foreign land, you don't have power there, and you are going to be executed. They don't even know why. You know? But Mordecai obviously had great courage to try and change things because he approached Esther, and he had courage because of his faith in God. Mordecai's faith is shown. He tells Esther in, in chapter 6, verses 13 to 14, he says, when he's trying to convince Esther, he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so this relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place this is Mordecai's confidence in God's sovereignty. That even if Esther refused to try to use her position to help 
her people, even if she didn't answer God's call to action, God will still save them another way. And Mordecai trusted God to do that somehow. And Esther likewise shows great courage that is based on her faith when she agrees to do so. You know, not just because she, she trusted that, okay, she's been perfectly placed there to do uh, that, to, to uh, save her people, but because she was risking her life to approach the king. Okay, back then, if you, uh, if you go to the king when he didn't call for you, that is an act punishable by death. Okay, so you, you cannot have people harassing the king. Uh, he needs to summon for you. So if you just randomly go up to him and want to take a selfie, that kind of thing, you'll be executed. Okay, so Esther was putting her life at risk by even going to the king to talk to him because he didn't summon for her. And so Esther tells her people, fast for her as she makes her request to the king. She clearly believed that God was very much part of what was going to happen. And God was. He showed himself to be faithful to his chosen people. Each time the Jews are on the brink of this extinction, he, uh, God would act to save his people. Now, remember, the Jews were the ancestors to the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is a Jew. Huh? And so each time the Jews were on the brink of extinction, it is almost like the, the existence of the Messiah was threatened. Okay? The, the birth of Jesus was at stake. Salvation of humanity through Jesus was threatened. But each time God delivered them. There are at least two major feasts in the, in the Jewish calendar that commemorate God delivering His chosen people from extinction. The first one is the Passover. Right? In Egypt, uh, they, it celebrates how God delivered the Israelites from slavery and eventual extinction. Because remember, there was an order to kill all the baby boys. Okay? And eventually, all the pure blood Israelites would die out because no more boys to mate with. Okay? So, uh, that was a, a feast to remember how God delivered the Jews from extinction. The second one is Purim. Okay, which we just looked at just now. And so that's what this faithful God does for His chosen people. They have faced extinction time and time again from not just ancient times, but also modern times, if you remember the Holocaust. Uh, they have been saved from extinction, and yet they have never been wiped out because God is always faithful to them. Now, for all of us who believe in Jesus, we are grafted into that chosen people. We're grafted into Israel, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 24. When we put our faith in Jesus, we identify as God's people. He remains faithful to us, always. And we will need His faithfulness, because as God's people, we can and we will become objects of hatred and persecution because of our faith, because we belong to God. Now, it's not just about being Christians in Malaysia. Uh, it's, it's not about being a, uh, wanting to practice our Christian faith in, in a, a country that has a different majority religion. 
It's about being a Christian in a world that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Persecution will come not just because we have the label Christian, not just because we identify as a Christian or because of our religious practices, whether we, we pray or we uh, have a physical Bible or whatever, but also because of our values and our beliefs. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so, friends, if you wonder why holding on to your Christian values and beliefs is so difficult in this world, well, Jesus explains it, it's because you do not belong to this world. You belong to God. But our faith is still worth, still worth holding on to because God is a faithful God who will provide for us. He will protect those who belong to Him. He has proven that in the story of Esther. He has proven that by sending Jesus to save us from our own sins that condemn us to death. He proves it time and time and time again. And so the Bible urges us time and time again to remain steadfast in our faith. In the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of persecutions, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of feeling like God is not there, in the midst of wondering why God is allowing this to happen, he says, remain steadfast, stand firm, persevere. And so just a bit of logic God's word, God's truth, will not ask us to persevere if there is no point in persevering. God won't ask us to stand firm and to remain steadfast if there is no point doing that, right? Or if it is not possible. And so, friends, I urge you, if you are feeling like God is, has abandoned you, if God is just distant, uh, God does not love you, you don't understand why God is doing this or allowing this. Remain steadfast. Persevere. In conclusion, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 to 4, we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And so in the midst of challenges in life, I urge you, when God seems to be silent or absent, continue to persevere in faith. Believe that God is always present and hope in Him who is always faithful and able to provide for you and protect you. Don't hope in what you can see. Don't hope in what you feel. Don't hope in what you can reason. Hope in God who is always present and faithful. And so know that God is always present and faithful even if it doesn't seem that way. Be strong be resilient in your faith and persevere when God seems absent. When persecution comes for His sake, when it becomes difficult to hang on to your Christian values at the workplace, in college, or your own home, persevere. May our faith in our ever-present and ever-faithful God continually increase day by day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Friends, at this time we come to a time of uh, reflection and discussion. And uh, as usual, we want, to, we want to encourage those of you here to, we want to encourage you to reflect on some questions, to discuss them among your families, your small groups, your fellowship groups. And so the first question is, put yourself in the shoes of a Jew during the events of Esther. What are your conclusions about God? What would be the conclusions that you would draw about this God that you, you are following? The second question, how can knowing the story of Esther and the rest of the Bible help us with our own conclusions that we have drawn in your life where God seems to be absent or silent? How can you persevere in your faith in Him? I leave these questions with you to reflect and to discuss.